Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome show for you today. We start with the anti-vax tax in Quebec. What a shocker yesterday from Quebec Premier Francois Legault. COVID cases surging there. Now the Quebec Premier says the government will charge a health care fee on the unvaccinated. Unvaccinated Quebecers clogging up hospital beds. Therefore, the government of Quebec will levy a significant charge on people who choose not to get vaccinated. Wow, is this going too far or should BC do the same thing? Okay, have a listen here to the Quebec Premier speaking yesterday about why they are doing this. Francois Legault yesterday, have a listen. The vaccine is the key to fight the virus. This is why we're looking uh, for a an health contribution for adults who refuse to be vaccinated for non-medical reasons. Those who refuse to receive their first dose in the coming weeks will have to pay a new health contribution. Okay, a health contribution there. Quebec Premier Francois Legault making that announcement yesterday. Don't know how much this will be yet, but it will be rolled out in the days ahead according to the Quebec government. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Gary Mason, columnist at The Globe and Mail, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Gary. Good morning, Michael. Okay, Gary, what do you think? Is it going too far, or do you think other provinces should do the same thing? Well, I mean, we still have to see some details around the tax, but I think in theory, I don't think it's going too far. I think uh, Francois Legault is a populist, and I think this is going to be a very popular measure in the province of Quebec. Uh, I think people there, like people across the country, Michael, are tired of the tail wagging the dog. And I think that this is just another measure that's uh, aimed at at trying to stop that from from happening. I mean, it's another tightening of the screws that that, you're seeing across the country. Uh, You know, people have generally lost their patience uh, with the unvaccinated. And I I think uh, the time has come to revert to almost any measure to get them to change their mind. Okay, I'm wondering, though, if this is even legal in our country. I suspect this will be challenged immediately in in court. And we have a thing in in Canada called the Canada Health Act. You're not allowed to charge people for health care, are you? Well, I I don't know. I, I think that this is part of the... I think that this is... What's made it a little bit problematic is that it's it's being called a health a health tax or, or it's being described in, in that way as a health contribution. Yeah. Nobody is being denied access to health care uh, in, in Quebec if they're unvaxxed. I mean, that that is not on the table here, although some people would like to see that as well. Uh, I, I think I think. You know, Legault's argument is a fair argument. Like, you know, the unvaxxed represent 10% of the population of Quebec, but they represent 50% of the cases in ICUs. And ICU cases, ICU healthcare is so expensive. You know, anybody who's in 
uh, ICU is costing the you know the province's uh, you know healthcare budget a lot, a lot more than somebody who's just in an emergency in and out one day. So I mean that's that's the that's the the problem that he's addressing here. But Michael, my my feeling is it, this is it, it's it's almost like more symbolic than anything else. I doubt very much we're going to see this tax in place for very long. I think it's just it's. I think it's designed to to scare people more than anything else. Well, I think it'll also potentially be overturned in court. But you know, I I get the arguments you're laying out there, Gary. On the other hand, where do you stop with this, right? Like, what about all the other people out there who make personal choices that land them in the hospital, right? I mean, do you start ch- taxing smokers next? All those people with cancer in hospital because they chose to smoke and what about heavy drinkers who damage their livers they end up in hospital you charge them too what about people go skiing and break their legs while they're skiing they make it a personal choice to do that you charge them next no but i mean i think that i think i don't think that i I think those are apples and oranges you know examples michael because i mean this is a pandemic that is being prolonged because of unvaccinated people I mean, you can't compare that to smoking. I mean, smokers haven't thrown us into a pandemic that is costing our healthcare system, you know, and, and they're not they're they're not passing on their their disease to other people. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's completely it's completely different. And and here's the other thing I don't understand. I don't understand, Michael, is that why are so why are people upset about like this? You know, that 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 someone's going to have to pay a COVID tax. You know, to take away, strip away the word healthcare. Just say they're going to pay a COVID tax for being unvaccinated. Why is that suddenly somehow worse than people losing their jobs? In the last couple of days, thousands of people in, in Canada, unvaxxed people in Canada, have lost their jobs. I think that that, if you look at it, is a hell of a lot more drastic than imposing a health contribution tax in the in the province of Quebec. Well, I still th- nobody nobody seems to be upset about that. I still think there's going to be a lot of problems with this. I think it'll be challenged in court for sure. One of the other things that occurs to me, Gary, for for your thoughts is what if you what if you're broke? What if you're a poor person? You can't afford it. You're unvaccinated. Now you got the government saying, "Well, now you owe us money for health care and you've got no money. You're broke. You're poor." I mean, how do you yeah. how do you get around that? Well, we, well, I think, I think that that's a, I think that's a fair point. And I, I think that, you know, we haven't seen any of the details in yeah. this, in this, in this policy. And, and I, I would, I would imagine, and I would be surprised if there wasn't some sort of means test that's associated with this. So they're not going to make people who are on welfare pay, you know, a 1200, you know, a $2,000 healthcare contribution tax. What if you're, what if you're a millionaire? Like, what if you're a millionaire too? Like, what if you're super rich and you're a millionaire anti-vaxxer, you're against the vaccine, and then the, the government turns around and says, well, you owe us, uh, $500 or a thousand bucks or something. You think they're going to care? I mean, the other argument is it's regressive, right? I mean, you have someone who's rich. Who cares if they get, if they get charged for not taking a vaccine? Well, you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right about that. But but it's just it's just another it's just another measure in a suite of measures. I mean, I I think I think if you still you know you you still have to keep turning the screws on people uh, on these people. What what if you what if you say to the rich person you're you're not going to be able to get uh, your a driver's license in in unless unless you're fully vaxxed, or you're not going to be able to get home insurance unless you're home. I mean, you you can. There's a whole bunch of ways that have yet. To be explored. Um, well, just look what what Italy's done. Basically, if you're if you're over the age of fifty, they expect you to be uh, fully vaxxed, and if you're not, you're going to lose your rights to do a whole bunch of things. And those that's the kind of stuff that's going to get people's attention, whether you're rich, poor, or in the middle. 
Gary, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. Okay, Michael, my pleasure. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about distracted driving now. I'll admit to you, I'm often tempted to check my text messages while I'm behind the wheel. Try to avoid doing that, though, because if you get caught, it's big money. They can hit you with a huge fine. They can hit you with penalty points on your driving record. It can cost you a lot of money, a lot of inconvenience, and they're out to get you. The cops can very, very easily catch you doing this. They're out there. They're looking for this. Have a listen to this ad here now from ICBC on distracted driving. Distracted driving is the number two cause of serious injuries and deaths in the province of British Columbia. On average, each year, 78 people are killed as a result of distracted driving. Today we're here in Vancouver conducting cell watch distracted driving enforcement with our community volunteers from the Chinatown Community Policing Centre. Police officers are out every day of the year doing distracted driving enforcement in your community. If you're the driver of a vehicle and you want to use your phone, you're putting yourself and others at risk. Okay, the police are out to get you on this stuff. One of the most common ways people get caught distracted driving when they're at a red light, right? You're sitting there at that red light. Of course, you're tempted to look down, check your phone. And sometimes the cops will be hiding in the bushes. They'll come out and grab you, nail you, and charge you with a distracted driving ticket. Now, check out this case now. Caitlin Quinn is the driver's name. She was using her speaker phone on her cell while she was waiting in her car in a two and a half hour long lineup to get a COVID test in Burnaby. Like even when you're waiting in line for a COVID test, yeah, you can get walloped with a distracted driving ticket. Let's check in with Kyla Lee now, lawyer at Acumen Law. Hey, Kyla. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, Kyla, this case, the, the driver who got caught with this, uh, charged with distracted driving in the COVID lineup, I, I, you're her lawyer, right? Yes. Okay, tell me what happened here. Well, um, this individual was uh, in the lineup waiting for a COVID test. It was when the uh, lineups were very, very long leading up to Christmas. Uh, she had her phone in her hand and was speaking on speakerphone to her brother while she was sitting idling in her car out of the way of the rest of traffic on the road waiting for her turn to come. Oh, man. Okay, how much is the ticket? $368, four yeah. penalty points on top of that. Oh boy, that is an expensive trip to the uh, to get a COVID test. I hope she tested negative for COVID after that. I don't know the answer. I don't know. To that. I don't know. That's that's her. That's her. That's her information. But I, you know, that would be insult to injury. You test positive after that. Okay. So, so what happens? Like, well, the cops are looking for people on their phone, even when they're idling in a in a two and a half hour long lineup to get a COVID test. Really? Yeah, so apparently Burnaby RCMP were out looking for all sorts of traffic issues because there were complaints about people, you know, cutting in the line and blocking intersections and doing things that are objectively dangerous. But this one officer took it upon himself to also spot for people using their cell phones in the COVID lineup, even though these people were not posing a risk to the public in the same way that the RCMP was there to enforce the laws about. Okay, what is, she's going to plead not guilty to this, right? You're fighting the ticket. Yeah, I think this right. ticket is completely contrary to the spirit and the intention of the law. You know, the clip you just played, the, the point of the law is to prevent these preventable deaths and injuries on the roadway. There was no risk that there was going to be any injury as a result of her sitting there in her basically parked car talking to her brother, probably because she's scared because she's worried she has COVID. Okay, you know what I hear from the cops? I, I'm sure you have heard this one too, Kyla. Like, let's say you're at 
a red light. So you're not moving. You're stopped. And you're, you do a quick check on your phone. Okay, you now ha- are glancing down. You're not paying attention to what's doing. The driver behind you leans on the horn after the light turns green. Okay, you now go, oh, my God, okay, I got to get going here. You hit the gas, and guess what? You don't notice there's a pedestrian just stepped in front of you. Right. This is what the police. This is what the police will say. This is why we charge you with distracted driving when you're sitting at a red light. And and I suspect they'd probably make the same argument in, when you're sitting in a COVID testing lineup too. Right. But the difference in the COVID testing lineup is you can't see necessarily when the vehicle in front is going or how far they're going. Right. If you've ever yeah. sat in one of those long lines, you know, one vehicle goes and then you turn your car on and you go and then the next person behind you goes and you move one car length at a time. It's very different than a red light, green light situation where everybody's watching the light. People are planning to get somewhere They're You know, they've got a destination in mind. They're not anticipating being in the same place for a very long time. So it's different circumstances. Okay. And in this case, your client, she was on hands-free, right? Like she was speaking to someone on a speakerphone. That doesn't matter though. It does not matter. As long as you're touching the phone, you're considered using it. The law is very broad. Right. So what if she had not been holding the phone in her hand? Like what if the phone was sitting in her, you know, on the passenger seat or something or, and she's on speakerphone. Is that distracted um, driving, or does the cop actually have to see you touching the phone? That would probably not have gotten her a ticket because there wouldn't have been any way to demonstrate that she was using the phone, although actively using it by talking, um, even if it's not secured to the vehicle, would still violate the law. If you're passively using it, like listening to music, it would not. Okay, speaking to Kyla Lee, she's a lawyer with Acumen Law. She specializes in driving law. Her client uh, rung up with a COVID or a, uh, a distracted driving ticket. She's talking on the phone on her speakerphone while waiting in line for a COVID test. So, Kyla, when you get into court, like, what are you going to argue here? I mean, what's what's your defense here? I mean, I think it's more about trying to use common sense in negotiating with the officer before court. You know, this wasn't what was intended by the law. This wasn't the purpose of him being out there conducting the enforcement that day. Um, you know, this was somebody who was in a vulnerable position as well because of her circumstances of waiting for a COVID test. And it's not fair to give her the full force of the law for something that posed the most minimal risk imaginable to the public. So uh, you're, just gonna, you're just hoping you got a nice cop here. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm persuasive. <laughs> yeah, well, I know you are. Uh, so maybe, the, I mean, does that work sometimes? I mean, when you talk to the police officer, are you able to sort of, you know, get talk them out of the ticket? Yeah, many uh, tickets are resolved by discussions with the police outside the courtroom. Um, and in wow. fact, the system relies on that happening. They overbook the court and hope that people are resolving them outside the doors of the courtroom and not taking every single ticket scheduled for court to trial. Okay, is it difficult to fight a distracted driving ticket in court? It can be. Um, because the law is very broad and it captures just, you know, momentarily touching the phone, uh, it captures a, a whole host of conduct. If the officer sees something that constitutes use, it's very hard to call into question what they actually saw, uh, unless your client wasn't doing the thing that the officer says that they saw and can testify and be believed about that. Okay, do you think the distracted driving laws and the penalties in British Columbia are unfair? I mean, a lot of people might hear this story and the circumstances of it. Here you have a woman sitting in a two-and-a-half-hour you know, mind-numbing lineup to get a COVID test, speaking on a speakerphone on her phone, on her cell phone, and she gets hit with this huge ticket. I mean, I think a lot of reasonable people might say, you know, come on, that's not fair. Do you think, generally speaking, though, that 
the distracted driving laws and penalties in BC are unfair? I do. I think that the because the law captures a broad range of conduct, it's unfair in circumstances that pose less risk. And the government could rewrite the law to be more severe for people who are doing the dangerous things like actively texting while moving and be less severe for people who are glancing at their phone at a red light. Right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking traffic law with my guest Kyla Lee, including the Burnaby driver who got rung up for distracted driving while talking on her cell phone by speakerphone while she was sitting in a two-and-a-half-hour COVID testing lineup. Let's go to your calls. Graham calling from the Sunshine Coast. Hi, Graham. Oh, hey there, Mike. Hi, good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, just, I live on the Sunshine Coast and spend a lot of time in ferry lineups, and everybody's on their phone, and we're moving our cars, jockeying them up and down. So laws should be applied consistently to some extent, you know, and what are we going to do about ferry lineups, for example? Yeah, well, okay, thank you for the call. Well, Kyla, all right, so let's say you're in the ferry lineup, and you, and you're ta- and you use your phone. Is that is that distracted driving? It actually depends on where you are in the ferry lineup, because a portion oh. of the BC Ferries property doesn't actually count as a highway under the Motor Vehicle Act, oh. and so you can't get tickets there. Okay, but if you're waiting outside the booth before you've got on to ferry property, and- maybe. Okay. Yeah. They can maybe grab you there. <laughs> grab you grab you just about anywhere melissa in vancouver hi melissa go ahead hi i i feel for this victim for sure right there's some a level of compassion for her yeah. but what i'm hearing is she wasn't in the parking lot yet she was on the road in a lineup waiting to get into the parking lot of the covid testing center so in fact she was on a road there's no difference than her being there or her being stopped at a red light her phone was in her hand Kyla, like is that last caller? It has to be consistent. Law is law. Okay, Kyla, is that correct? Uh, it is correct. Although that portion of the road was blocked off by with cones and was dedicated specifically to people being in the COVID lineup. Yeah, and she was not. And she was not moving, or, or was she moving very slowly? Or she was not moving at the time. Yeah, at the t- at the time. Okay. Nick in Vancouver. Hi, Nick. Go ahead. Mike, how you doing? Good. Go ahead. Okay, um, I just have, I have two things to say. I actually did fight a ticket one time and won. But as for the, that lady sitting in the lineup there, if her car was in park, I think should be the thing right there. If it's in park, there's no safety issue. She's not moving. She's not going anywhere. Maybe they could have caught her if, you know, she inched forward or something like that. But if she was in park, I don't think she should be ticketed. But um, I actually... Well, let, well, let me find out, let me find out from Kyla real quickly. If she, was she the car in park, Kyla? If the car is in park, it still has to be safely off the roadway in a designated parking spot for the exception to apply. There was actually a case on this where somebody put their car in park in a left-turning lane and said that they were in park so they couldn't be ticketed and lost. Didn't count. Yeah, that doesn't no. count. You still get ticketed. Okay, go ahead, Nick. What else do you want to say? And I got a ticket uh, many years ago in Maple Ridge by the IR, IRSU, the Integrated Road Safety Unit. Um, I was going down Dudney Trunk Road, and there was an officer facing the opposite way, and uh, all of a sudden his lights came on and as I was passing. And I admit I was going about three kilometers over the speed limit, but there was a car next to me that, that had zoomed by me previous to that. And this guy, this cop came right at me, pulled me over. I got I got a ticket for excessive speeding when I knew I wasn't the one. So I did my research, went online found out that I should inquire about what type of radar the man was using and uh, I wrote the I wrote them a letter asking him what type of radar he sent me all the information I showed up for court and when I showed up to the court to, to fight the ticket he approached me just before the proceedings and said I'm going to be um, 
talking to the judge and asking him to dismiss the charges against oh. you. He says, I don't have any notes. I, don't, I didn't bring any notes, and I don't have any notes relevant to this right now. So they let me go. Okay. Well, good for you. Kyla, what do you think of that? That's a good reason why it's always good to fight your tickets, um, because you never know what's going to happen. The officer might lose their notes. The officer might not show up to court. The officer might be in a very compassionate mood that day and, and drop the ticket because they feel bad for you. Um, often, it's worth fighting the ticket. How often does the police officer just not show up? Because I actually had a, a cop actually tell me that once, that when you get a ticket, you should just dispute it because most times the police officer just doesn't show up in court. Uh, that's pretty rare, actually. They, it okay. used to be a big problem, but um, there was a crackdown on it a while ago. And now officers can be disciplined if they don't show up without good reason. But you never know. The officer might get called out to some emergency on their way to court yeah. and not be able to make it for a real reason. James on the line in Surrey. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi. I just wanted to um, tell you about an issue where I received a ticket for going the one, wrong way on a one-way. Okay. And... I disputed the ticket, but I disputed it for the amount. It turned out that the police officer didn't show up. <clears throat> so the judge asked me if I wanted to change my plea. And I said, well, sure, I'll change it to not guilty. And she said, well, how's that for a lesser amount? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot less. A down lot to, less. So. Down to zero. What was the fine originally? Uh, I can't remember. It was years ago. It was for going the wrong way on a one-way at Gateway. They had just changed that street in Wally to a one-way the first day, and the signs weren't very clear. I was coming out of a parking lot, and I just turned right and stopped. And the police overran over to me and said, oh, you're going the wrong way. And I said, oh, well, I don't see any signs. (laughs) Okay, James, that was your lucky day in court there. Thank you for sharing that. Garrett on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Garrett. Hi, Mike. Uh, so about three months ago, I got a pulled over for a trailer light being out, and then it was sorted, and the police officer gave me a ticket for having two headphones in my ears, despite me not even listening to anything, and I did not know that was the rule. So oh, Kayla, okay. Kyla's thoughts on that. Kyla. Yeah, that is a, a one that gets a lot of people. You are allowed to have an earbud in when you're driving, but you're not allowed to have both in. So a lot of people think that they're doing the right thing. They're complying with the law. They're using their phone through their AirPods, and then all of a sudden they get a ticket. So only one. (laughs) Okay. So you have to have only one earbud in. If you have two earbuds, you're in trouble. What's the rationale there? I guess if you have one earbud uh, not in, you can hear... You can hear a siren or something or someone beeping their horn at you more easily, I guess. exactly. It's your ability to hear the things on the road. Yeah. Troy in Chilliwack. Hi, Troy. Go ahead. Troy. Oh, man. You you snooze, you lose. All right. Uh, Kyla, is it? Uh, what is your, what's your batting average there in court? Like when you fight these tickets in court, like do you, you know, you said earlier they were tough to, they were tough to fight, right? A distracted driving. Case. They are, but yeah. I have a very good success rate at uh, persuading police to do the right thing. Um, and I have won uh, several trials for distracted driving tickets when the police haven't agreed to do anything lesser. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with the great home equity tax debate. Now, we all know about the affordability crisis in real estate in Metro Vancouver. Home prices have gone through the roof. How do we fix this? Okay, how about this idea? Put an annual tax on homes 
valued at over $1 million. Use that money to build affordable housing. That is the proposal outlined in a brand new study. Now, we talked about this earlier this week on the show. I asked Aaron O'Toole about this idea, the leader of the federal conservative party. Now, the Trudeau liberal government, the federal liberal government has ruled this idea out. Uh, O'Toole is not buying it. Here's what he told me. Trudeau wants to come after home equity. They see it as a way to pay for some of their out-of-control spending. How they will do it, they're going to be very sneaky, just like they said they were going to cancel the GST and never did back in the day. So you can't trust the Liberals here. Well, talking to me on Monday. Let's talk about this now. We got both sides of it for you. Paul Kershaw, UBC professor. He's the founder of Generation Squeeze. He's the author of this report. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for doing it. Also on the line, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councilor. He's been a frequent guest here on the show talking about affordable housing. Hi, Dylan. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Let me go to you, Paul, first. Uh, you're the guy who, who's, who kicked this hornet's nest here with your report with this home equity tax. How would this work now? So at bottom, what we're trying to do is encourage a conversation that would ask Metro Vancouverites and Canadians more generally, what do we want from housing? Are we open to the idea that to restore affordability for all, we need home prices to stall so that earnings have a chance to catch up? And if people buy that logic, then we need to think about what are the range of policies that currently operate, perhaps unintentionally, but to incentivize us to want home prices to rise and to change those policy incentives. And so that's one of the reasons why we are proposing to close or not close, but reduce slightly, actually, the home ownership tax shelter. And people may be wondering, what the heck does that mean? But here's the bottom line. If you go to work today, you're going to be taxed 100% on the earnings you make. If you invest some of those earnings in the stock market, 50% of your return on investment will be subject to taxation. But if you own a home like I do, any wealth windfalls that come to your home are barely taxed, which then incentivizes to say, wait a sec, housing's a great way to have a good after-tax return on investment. And that in that thinking, that logic gives rise to a system that tolerates housing prices skyrocketing. But it's only it's only if you're if it's your principal residence, though, right? If it's your principal residence, you don't pay the tax. Exactly, Correct? the principal yeah. residence is the most common kind of capital that Canadians have. It's the way in which people are most likely to accumulate wealth. And I'm happy if people, you know, buy a place for seven hundred fifty thousand. They have a big mortgage and they pay off their mortgage over time to you know pay you know pay themselves. But if you're hoping your, your home is going to double or triple in value, then that logic is part of the problem, and we have to change policies that incentivize us to okay. hope for that. Okay, so Paul Kershaw, his argument, tax the value on those high-priced homes, plow that money into affordable housing. Dylan Kruger, your thoughts. What do you think of this idea? Mike, let me start with saying uh, I'm a huge fan of, of Paul and the work that Generation Squeeze uh, does. I think it's really needed work, and I think we actually agree on more than we disagree on. Uh, on this particular piece, though, I really feel like this is another demand suppression tactic, and, and we've we've seen a lot of these over the last five or six years. I mean, just think of the taxes that we put on housing in the last half decade, the foreign buyer's tax, the speculation tax, the vacancy tax, the school tax, uh, property tax increases. City of Vancouver alone, 5%, 6%, 7% property tax increases every year. So we see the taxes on, on, on housing going up every year, and I don't think the problem is getting better. We seem to want to do everything except for tackle you know, what I see as the real issue here, which is a serious lack of supply. And the lack of, of supply really stems from, from government uh, backlogs and, and red tape that is not approving the supply of housing that we need fast enough. 
we're going to have a million new residents coming to Metro Vancouver by, by 2050. Uh, average 35,000 people a year. That's the size of, of the city of Port Moody every year moving to, Met- to Vancouver. So we don't have the supply of housing to deal with the demand now, let alone the demand that's yeah. coming. We've got to build okay. more housing. That, to me, is much more present. Okay. Paul Kershaw, your thoughts? Well, we're going to be a mutual admiration society. I'm a fan of Dylan and the political advocacy he does for young people and others. And he's right. It's not an either-or issue. We do need to increase supply. We do need to go and address the zoning in Delta and other communities around this Metro Vancouver region and say, when we preserve land primarily for single detached homes, we contribute to price inflation and housing because we don't add the density that would help add the supply that would help to mute housing prices. And we need to talk about money laundering and we need to talk about low interest rates that are having collateral damage for housing and affordably. We need to talk about it all. But on that, what you called it a hornet's nest, we can't talk about the tax policy side of the equation because it seems to be a third rail issue. I'm trying yeah. to be a punching bag for Canadians right now to say we have to have a more mature conversation if we really care about wealth inequality okay, and well, affordability. Well, the reason I, I call it kind of a hornet's nest is because I, I think you're right. I mean, this is kind of a, a firestorm of an issue when you start when you go to people who have worked all their lives, paid off their mortgage. Yeah, the value of their home has gone up. But guess what? That's their nest egg. That's their retirement plan. And now you're going to come along and say, we're going to tax you every year on it. And people are going to be mad as hell. That's why I don't think the, the Trudeau liberals will go near this, despite what O'Toole said in that clip we played, because I just think it'd be political suicide to do it. Like, what do you, Paul, what do you say to the people who live in their, their principal residence? They paid off their mortgage and they say, hey, this is my retirement fund. This is what I'm leaving for my kids. I hear you. I mean, it's part of my planning, too. But there's a difference between a nest egg and then a pot of large amounts of gold. And so, you know, last year, my home went up by half a million dollars. That's like a large pot of gold. That isn't a nest egg. That is a wealth windfall. You know, if I'd accumulated that half a million dollars over 10, 15 years of work, then great is my savings. But this is only, yeah. this is happening in our housing system, and we're tolerating it. And we are, we're saying, oh, that housing, that person whose nest egg now just grew and grew and grew, and they're counting on it, and that that should be somehow not open for any further conversation when the collateral damage to Dylan and Dylan's generation in terms of trying to live in this community. I wonder, Dylan, can I ask you, do you live in a million-dollar home? <laughs> I do not live in a million-dollar home, Paul. Okay, so, Dylan, what I need is I need the Dylans in this community right now to be saying, yes, we want to be concerned about the ability for people to retire in our community and the nest eggs on which they're counting. But, look, we can't care about that so much without understanding the unaffordability that not just nest eggs, but massive pots of gold via housing are causing okay. for younger Canadians. Okay, what about those... is being screwed by a housing system that doesn't care about younger voices and their needs to try and rent homes that have enough bedrooms for kids because we're not talking about the wealth that people like me are accumulating. Okay, Dylan, what about, what about all those pots of golds out there? Should they be taxed? Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with, with almost everything Paul just said, and I think there is a real generational crisis that's coming up here with younger people that can't afford to get into the market. But I don't think additional taxes on housing are, are going to necessarily solve that problem. The problem is that we've got a broken market. We've got uh, an artificial market that's been created by basically municipalities putting time capsules over entire swaths of neighborhoods and saying that these single detached homes are not allowed to evolve and change over time. The reality is for a lot of people my age, the dream of the the single detached home with the white picket fence is over. We know that in order to be able to continue to live in cities, we're going to have to live denser, more compact, more urban lives in in housing where we can walk uh, and take transit to to, restaurants and shops and services. 
So we need to have a shift, in ter- I think a cultural shift in terms of the type of housing that we deem adequate uh, in the region, and we need to start building that housing. But couldn't you, couldn't you leverage like all that wealth that's sitting in all those homes, though, that Paul's been describing? Could you not leverage that wealth and put it to good use and build all that affordable housing that, you, that we want? There's people, that are, there's people that are lining up right now to, to build that housing, though, Mike. And, you know, there was an article recently about the, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of applications that are in back, backlog in the city of Vancouver alone. And that includes nonprofit housing providers. When you listen to the BC Nonprofit Housing Society, one of their biggest gripes is that the depth of the subsidies that they're able to provide on their below market units for their tenants goes down significantly okay. every month, every year. That their projects are languishing in the approvals process. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about that proposed home equity tax. Put an annual tax on homes valued over $1 million. Use that money to pay for affordable housing. My guests are Paul Kershaw from UBC, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councillor. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Sharon and Burnaby. Hi, Sharon. Go ahead. I was just telling that young fellow I was just talking to that I don't determine that my house has gone from $1.5 to $1.9 million. I'm not the one who says, well, this is what the property is assessed at now. I have to pay the taxes now on that increase. I'm probably not even going to get my seniors grant this year, which uh, that's, a, that's okay. But at the same time, there's houses being knocked down in this neighborhood because my house is from 1962, and they're building these 4 or $5 million houses, which also determine that now my house value has gone up. And I just think the whole thing is totally wrong. I mean, I'm helping my children now. I'm lucky enough to be able to assist them in purchasing properties. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they've got the speculation tax, the empty home tax, all these bloody taxes, which are basically dinging mostly a lot of seniors. I mean, there are some young people who've got, but they're dinging us for our wealth, which we have built up over many, many years of hard work. And we went through the 18% basically interest rate in the 70s and 80s, which we had to pay. And I just am absolutely furious that these people are saying it's now our responsibility to pay for other people so they can get into a home. We sacrificed. We did without. My husband worked 80 hours a week. And I'm sorry, but... They just don't suck it up anymore. And that's how I feel. And I don't want any more taxes. Thank you very much. All right, Sharon. Thank you for a passionate call. Paul, what do you say to her? Well, I say, Sharon, I applaud your hard work over the many years and your husband's hard work. And what I want is that for Dylan's hard work and his generation's hard work to pay off to the same degree. And the reality is that it doesn't. And one of the reasons that it doesn't happen is because what has allowed you to accumulate more wealth in your homes, which you're then sharing with your kids, I appreciate that. But there are many kids out there who don't have family members who have accumulated hundreds of thousands of dollars of additional wealth in their homes, and they can't inherit it. And so their hard work doesn't pay off. And that's what we're fighting for right now. And when you accuse Dylan's generation of actually just expecting it all and not working for it, it is demeaning, it is inaccurate, and it actually doesn't do you justice because it is suggesting that you're not understanding that our system is literally tolerating the hard work that you so value no longer paying off. I want okay. you to fight for that. Okay, well, let's go to Dylan. Dylan, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the reason that we're seeing a lot of these the, these values continue to rise, right? I mean, look at Metro Vancouver. We've got the mountains to the north. We've got the ocean uh, to the, the west. We've got the U.S. border to the south, and we're surrounded by agricultural land. 
So the amount of buildable land is very scarce in Metro Vancouver. If we want to build more housing supply, we have to find opportunities to build more housing units on the scarce amount of land. Right, but, you, but, but, you're all, but you're saying that you should not tax Sharon's home to pay for it. it because what? That's not, just not fair? Like she basically said it's not her fault that her home has gone up in value so much. I just frankly don't think it's going to make a difference. Like if the goal is, I think there's two different questions. Is, is there an equity component to consider? And that's something that we can have a discussion. But if the goal is to fix the housing affordability crisis, we've added so many new taxes over the last five years, and we've only seen yeah. housing prices continue to go up. I just mm. don't. Can I jump? Going to help. Can I jump in on that one? Yeah, Mike? I think sure. Three things. First, we should be able to walk and shoot gum at the same time. I know Dylan can. I think Sharon might likely be able to as well. So we should address wealth inequality and housing affordability simultaneously. Second, look, the government of BC brags that its speculation tax applies to fewer than 1% of British Columbians. The signal's not strong enough. And so what we're talking about is needing a slightly stronger signal in the system to help try and put a downward pressure on home prices. And Dylan's right. We need more supply. But we can't bring in supply that's affordable if we keep tolerating land values going up, developers can't deliver new rentals or new homes and reach for what young people can earn. And so okay. we have to slow down those land values, and the tax system has a role to play. It's not a panacea, but it has a role to play, and a better use of the tax system now could address some of these challenges. Okay, back to the phone lines. Paul and Burnaby. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Hi. Right. Yeah, you know, the problem is is demand and supply. We just don't have enough supply, and we got too much demand. And if you look at my house, I don't even care if it goes up. I bought my house, and I paid for it so I can live in it. And I'm ready for retirement, and you're telling me now, now you're going to tax me? I mean, you know, I'm not selling my house. I can't. Where am I going to go? Now, as far as uh, demand, how are we letting foreigners come into this country they're not even Canadian citizens. They don't even work here. And now they're buying the property and increasing uh, the demand cycle. My kids or our children, they have to work hard. They have to pay all these taxes to try to save some money. And then somebody comes from whatever country and drops in and outbids our children. It's okay, so what a- stupid. Paul, thank you for the call. What about that, Paul? We already got a foreign buyer's tax, though, right? Paul? So we have a foreign buyer's tax, but we do welcome immigrants into our country for a whole range of reasons, not least of which when uh, in order to pay for old age retirement security that many of the seniors who are listening to today depend upon and want to count on. uh, One of the hard truths that we need to acknowledge is that when we started those systems, there were seven workers for every senior. So the people who worked over the last several decades and paid taxes all their lives paid for the future, paid for the retirees of the day, not their own retirement. And now there's only three and a half workers for every senior. So immigration helps contribute to that. One of the challenges, though, is when immigrants want to settle more in our cities, which makes sense, as do most young people looking for jobs as well, that does contribute new demand for our housing system. So it can cut okay. both ways because that can contribute to rising prices. Okay. Uh, to the, just to oh. that, Paul fellow, I, I don't want to tax you right now. Uh, I'd rather not. I wish we didn't have to do it. But the modest price on housing and equity that we're proposing, you wouldn't need to pay until the home is sold. If your home's at 1.2 million right now, it's like 400 bucks a year. It's a modest contribution to try and contribute to a fund that could build deeply affordable co-op and rentable housing for the kids and grandchildren you just said you loved. Okay, Dylan, you got 30 seconds here to wrap it up. Well, I think what I would leave it at is, and, and Paul just touched on this, 
Um, you know, when in bragging about the the lack of impact that this tax is going to have, four hundred dollars a year on a one point two million dollar house. If the goal of the tax is to help us demand, then I think that the the tax is going to fail in doing that. If we need to create okay. deeper housing affordability, we need to create more housing units.